morning. I hope you guys are as excited for today as I am. I mean, I really love Palm Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, way more than Christmas. You understand, we're the only ones that got this. We're the only ones that have the resurrection. Buddha, he dead. Muhammad, he dead. Abraham, he dead. Jesus, he ain't dead. He is alive. No other belief system has this. They have reincarnation, but that's not the same. We are the only ones that have the resurrection. And when we do the Seder this afternoon, by God's mercy, you will understand the beauty and the glory of Passover, the beauty and glory of his death, burial, and resurrection way better than you do even now. And it is going to be so glorious, so glorious. But now we have to look at what but God has said. And we'll be starting in Ephesians. By now, you've probably figured out we start one place, but we never end there. We always move around. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's pray first for the Spirit to bless our time here in the Word and to be filling our hearts. Oh, Lord, thank you for the goodness of your Word. Thank you for the blessing of your holiness. Thank you for the gift of what you have done for us in your rich, rich mercy. And Father, we plead with you. We plead with you as those who have been beaten and shaken and tossed by the waves of the sea. We plead with you to send your spirit to open the hearts, open the minds, open the ears and open our souls so that we will see you and know you and find you even more delightful and more joyful than we've known before. And we ask it in your holy name. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 2, we'll start with verse 1. But God's rich mercy here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. Oh, this has got to be one of the most richest, joyous, soul-exalting passages in all of Scripture. Because it takes us from where we were and who we were to who we are now by the blood of Jesus and who we will be, praise God, in the future. And it starts out with who we were. And the emphasis here is on who we were. We are not this anymore. But this is what we were. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, walking according to the prince of this world. We all, I mean, all of us can remember what that was like, our life before Christ, right? Before we tasted the sweetness of the love of Jesus and before we understood the glory of the beauty of our Savior and interruptions from our watches and the glory of just walking in his presence. We remember what it was like in our former days when we didn't know him and we walked, yeah, in darkness, just doing stuff that we thought gave us happiness but left us hollow and empty on the inside. But that's not who we are anymore. That one time we were following the prince of this world just like the sons of disobedience. Now that's an odd word. The sons of disobedience. I mean, I mean, I've heard the son of Adam, son of man, son of Peter, son of John, but, I, but I've never heard, you know, the sons of disobedience is, this is the only place I've ever heard that phrase, sons of disobedience. And it describes that moment of time when those who have been in open rebellion against Jesus and against the Father walk according to the one whom they're following. See, the idea here, the sons of disobedience, is this idea that you're, you've got a father. Even though you've rejected God as your father, you still got a father. And it just happens to be the father of disobedience. The father that we know is the devil. I mean, that's an unpleasant thought. That, that I'm a son of the devil? Yeah, unfortunately. That's, but that's who we were, but that's not who we are. We were those who walked in disobedience. We were those living out the desires of the flesh and our bodies and the mind. See, look at this. Look at the whole personhood of this disobedience in verse three among we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath. I still struggle with this thing, right? I I know I'm not that guy anymore, but you know, I mean, I still struggle with, the passions of the flesh, the desires of the body and the mind, these things that come against me are against us, right? It's just, it's just easier to be mad at the person cutting me off than it is to 
to bless them. Right? It's just, as we talked about during the Sunday school hour, it's just easier for me to pray for God's punishment and judgment against the persons who are doing things in our society and culture that are destroying it themselves and leading others to the same destruction, right? It, it's hard for me to pray for them like Stephen prayed for his oppressors when he was being stoned to forgive them. For, right? He didn't pray that he would forgive them. He prayed that God would forgive them. I see, I, I'm, I'm not good at that. I'm just not good at that. But that's the places that we're going. That's the places God is taking us to. And who we once were, were those that were just controlled by our passions, by our anger, by our fear. We can just, you can make this, we can make a very long list of these things. Anger, fear, resentment, bitterness, all of those things. And they are the the very things that Paul is describing here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. But they don't have to be the things that drive us anymore. We can be free from these because of what Christ has done for us. He has set us free. Now we read, I'm going to mix in some other stuff here. Because this is Palm Sunday, right? And we read from Matthew chapter 21 to start the service about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Okay, so what we need to read, right, the part about him coming on a cult was from prophecy by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, where he predicted the coming of the Messiah would look like that, riding on a horse. But we're not going to Zechariah. We're going to Psalm 118. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 118. This psalm is one of the psalms the people of Israel, the Jews, were singing that day. Right? You understand that the psalms were written as songs to be sung. They were singing this one along with others that day as they are going up into Jerusalem. Okay? I want you to grasp, as we remember today is Palm Sunday, I want you to grasp the hugeness of this moment, right? Jewish Passover wasn't going to start until Friday. Here it was the Sunday before Passover and Jesus is going into Jerusalem. That is because seven days before Passover, they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it was part of a seven-day celebration that's just beginning as Jesus goes into Jerusalem this morning. And these are one of the songs they're singing. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph 
on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. Okay, this is really important. They're walking into Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, which is the celebration of their exodus from slavery while under the slavery of Roman oppression. And everybody's expecting the Messiah to deliver them from Roman oppression. And Jesus is riding in just like the prophet Zechariah said he would as the king who was going to save Israel. So can you think about the expectations people are having in this moment? Okay. And they're singing these words, all nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. They're singing this as Jesus is riding in and they're waving palm branches and throwing their coats down on the streets in front of him as he rides into Jerusalem. Look, it's easy to see what their expectations were. It's Passover. This is the perfect time to, for Jesus to come out as the king of Israel and to kick the Romans and lead the new revised powerful army of Israel to chase them out of Jerusalem, to chase them out of Judah and to reestablish David's throne. This is the perfect time. And look, here he is. He's even riding a donkey, just like Zachariah said he would. And they're singing this song as he's riding up the hill from the brook Kidron into the city of Jerusalem. They're thinking he's there going to kick out the nations. But he's not there for verses 10 through 16. He's there for verses 25 through 29. He is there to be the sacrifice bound with cords and led up to the horns of the altar. He is there to bring them salvation, but not the one they're expecting. They're expecting a physical salvation from the Romans. And he's there to give them the salvation that they desperately need deliverance from the slavery 
of sin and its oppression of our souls. And it is the same today for us. He is here to save us from the oppression of our souls before he tries to save us from the oppression of our bodies. And as we struggle with everything that happens in and around us, in our personal lives and in the culture around us, he is here to deliver us from the greatest slavery there is, even greater than the things we see in the world around us today. He is the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And we were like these people. We came to Jesus looking for physical deliverance. Most of us, I don't know about you guys, but most of us come to faith in Christ as a result of a crisis in our life. Something really, really, really unpleasant. And we turn to God because we know I can't do this. I can't fix this. I can't turn this around. I am hopeless in my own strength. I'm going to have to rely on God to do something here. And we come to him in that physical crisis looking for the same kind of deliverance that the people of Israel did that day as he's riding into Jerusalem. But instead, he brings us the deliverance that we truly desperately need, the deliverance from the darkness and the ache in our souls because we are worshiping the wrong God. We have traded the truth of God for an idol in our lives. And as a result, we are worshiping someone or something other than our Heavenly Father who is the only one that can give us joy and happiness in our souls and give us true salvation and true deliverance from the oppression that we feel inside our hearts and homes. And that is who we were. But hallelujah, praise God, that ain't who we are no more. We are those who have been redeemed and sanctified and set apart. We are those who have had the blood of Jesus painted over the doorpost of our hearts so that we are now alive with him. Verse 5, that even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. This is who we are. We are alive in Christ. We are saved. We are sanctified. We are set apart. And we can taste the joy of the goodness of his salvation and walking with him and fellowship with him. We even get to enjoy the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit so that our fellowship with him is even better and greater and bigger than it would be. And we are also seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So what does that mean? That's, that's a little confusing. It's a little odd. What does that mean? We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So to understand this, we have to realize God and Jesus now see time differently than you and I, right? We see time as this forward moving thing that's always happening. And what is to be has not yet become. But for God and Jesus, they have already seen all of eternity, all of human time. They saw the beginning. 
They see now and they see the future and the end. And for them, they see the whole thing having already taken place. So when Paul says that we are seated with him, from the perspective of the Father in Christ, we've already been through everything we're going to experience in this life and have transitioned into the next life where we now sit with him in glory. That's a hard concept for us to grasp because we are time-locked humans. We have no concept of life apart from time. And we have no concept of being able to see the whole thing. Here's my best analogy. You go see a movie. You love the movie. And then you decide the rest of your family should see the movie. And they're coming to see the movie after you've already seen it. You're watching this movie for the second time, but you've already seen the whole thing. You understand everything that's going to happen. And as it's happening, you already know the end of the story and you see it knowing the full story while they're experiencing it for the first time. Well, they're experiencing each moment of the movie, each turn in the plot, each twist in the characters. For them, it's brand new. They've never experienced this moment before. But for you, you're watching it and seeing it as the whole. That's my closest analogy to what it's like for the God and the Father, God the Father and Jesus. And that's not a good one, right? And that's the problem with all analogies. They start to break down when you push them too far. But we, in their minds, they already see us as the completed, perfected children of God seated beside Christ. Oh, man. That just is, that is, I don't know about you, but that is just such a burden off my heart, mind, and soul that God doesn't see me as the mess I am. He sees me as the perfected son that I'm going to be in my mind. But I'm already there in his. I hope that gives you the same kind of relief that God sees you as the perfected one, not the mess that you are. And that's who we are now. And who we are now also has a purpose, right? Verse seven, so that, that's a purpose clause. This is the purpose of us being made alive and transformed from who we were to who we are. So that in the coming ages, we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We, we, we're, we're living examples, right? The purpose of all this is to display the glorious riches of his mercy and grace. I mean, you guys know not very much about me and my past. But if we ever get to talk about everything you'll really understand how gloriously gracious and merciful his rich mercy is because I am so undeserving of the mercy he's shown and the love and kindness to redeem me and restore me from the places that I've fallen. To, oh, to be free from sin and shame and its guilt. Because his rich mercy, that when I was dead in my trespasses and sin, he made me alive 
with Christ so that I might be a picture of his mercy and grace to others. And that is true for each and every one of us, brothers and sisters. Every single one of us that have tasted the glory of Jesus and have felt the glory of his forgiveness, we are a picture of his grace and mercy to the rest of the world around us. And look, I I just don't need you to display the richness of his mercy and glory and goodness in your life to the outside world of non-believers. I need to see it too. I need to see what he has done for you because that is an encouragement for me as well. Because we all suffer from this singular individualistic problem, unique-itis. We think we're the only ones like this. We think we're the only ones that need God's mercy. Or we think we're the only ones that don't need God's mercy. And in reality, we all do. And it's the stories of his mercy in our lives that give us continued hope for the future. Don't be afraid to tell your story of grace. Don't be afraid to tell it to anyone, especially me, because I love hearing those stories, especially when I didn't have anything to do with them. Right? That's all who we are. Look, if this was all he did, it would be enough. If he took us from who we were and made us into who we are, that would be enough. But no, he did even more. Look at who we will be. Starting in verse 8. For by grace, this is because, you could just substitute the word because for the word for. Because by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. See, who we will be is an even more perfect example of God's love and kindness. Who we will be are the perfected ones that he sees us as right now with the new heaven and the new earth and new bodies. Look at Revelation 21. Starting in verse 1 through verse 7, this is John describing what he has seen at the end of time, right? The very end of time. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Then jump to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, 
for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is a glorious place that we're going to. This is a glorious personhood that we are going to be. The ones who never taste death, never have tears, never experience sadness or disappointment, who never, ever walk in darkness again. Never any darkness, always light, 24-7. And there is nothing dishonorable and nothing unclean because the only people there are those whose names have been written in the book of life. The names of those who have said, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Son of God, and he is my Redeemer, my Savior, and on his work alone do I trust for the forgiveness of my sins. Oh, what a glorious place he will take us. But even so, even now, here, there's something left for us to do. For you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is stunning. I mean, this is absolutely stunning. I am dead in my trespasses and sins, living in the old way of the old thinking and the old beliefs. But yet God has already prepared good works ahead of time for me to do after I come to faith in him. Then I come to faith in him and I get to go do these good works that he's already prepared ahead of time. So there's something kind of significant about this besides just the amazing mind blowing thing of him doing something like preparing good work for me before I'm even saved. If he's prepared these good work ahead of time for me to walk in, if he's prepared this good work for you and I ahead of time to walk in, what will be the end result of walking in them? We can't do it wrong. Even when we do it wrong, we're doing it right. Think about that for a second. I'm doing it wrong, but I'm still doing it right because this is the way he planned for me to do it. So that for the purpose of growing in my Christ likeness and being more like him, right? You see, we all understand this. We just don't grasp it sometimes about our walk with Christ. Nobody starts out walking perfectly. Look, all of us have either very small children or small grandchildren. None of them came out of the womb running like Carl Lewis, right? None of them came out of the womb running like an NFL running back. They came out of the womb not even able to crawl. And then they they had to work through and grow physically and mentally to the place where they could crawl, then to the place where they could stand up and wobble down the hallway. And then finally to the place where they could walk and run faster than we, which is always a disappointing day when your children can outrun you. 
It also creates difficult challenges in, dis in the areas of discipline when they can outrun you. This is no different for us in our walk with Christ. We start out not even able to crawl, and we just crawl in our good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. And then we wobble through them, and then we eventually are able to run through them. This is who we are, and this is where we're going. Okay, so what? I mean, this is great, fantastic opening up of the word, Brian, but so what? Well, the first so what is just walk in the good works you've been given. God has given you something. You cannot sit here and tell me he has not given you a good work to walk in. That is absolutely false. You may not know what it is, but it's still there. Just walk in the good work he has been given you. And then second, oh, see and receive God's great love for you. Not based on good works that you have done or that you're going to do. Not earning his love by keeping everything just right. Nope, absolutely none of that. Get rid of all of that thinking and all of that false belief system and receive his great love for you as his gift to you and then enjoy it. Revel in it. Taste the sweetness of it and just joy in it. Living free from guilt and shame. Let joy well up from within your hearts as a spring wells up from the ground and let the joy flow down over your whole being. For he has redeemed you and me. As his redeemed ones taste and see the goodness of God and sing with the ancient Hebrews on that day from Psalm 118. Let Israel say, let Castle Rock Baptist say, his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever over you and me. As individuals and as a body, his steadfast love endures over us. Receive his great love for you. Oh, just drink that in. Oh, Father, you are a good, good Father who loves us and has redeemed us. Thank you for your rich, rich, rich mercy and love. And I pray, Father, that our hearts would finally be completely ready and receive this love, living no longer in shame and guilt, but as free men and women whom you have set free from our oppression. In Jesus' name, amen.